John chapter 19. Scripture says, Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the, cru- and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, do you, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. That was the day of preparation for the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. They took Jesus, therefore, and he went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Therefore many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to decide whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They divided my outer garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour the disciple took her into his own household. 
After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who is seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate granted permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. Had a friend share with me a song that I was not familiar with, and he said he enjoyed it on Good Friday, or thinking about the passion of Christ. All in the April evening, April airs are abroad. The sheep with their little lambs passed me by on the road. The sheep with their little lambs passed me by on the road. All in the April evening, I thought on the Lamb of God. The lambs were weary and crying with a weak human cry. I thought on the Lamb of God going meekly to die. Up in the blue, blue mountains, dewy pastures are sweet. Rest for the little bodies, rest for the little feet. But for the Lamb, the Lamb of God, up on the hilltop green, only a cross, a cross of shame, two stark crosses between. All in the April evening, April airs were abroad. I saw the sheep with the lambs and thought on the Lamb of God. That's what we're going to do this evening, is think on the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, said John, John chapter 1, verse 29. That was John's testimony to the Messiah. It was an indication of what this one came to do. We actually read 
in this chapter a reference to Christ, Jesus, being the Passover lamb. Verse 36, that passage that says, Not a bone of him shall be broken, combined with Paul's testimony in the book of 1 Corinthians, we can see Christ was indeed the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. If you turn back to chapter 18, I want to look at the Lamb of God tonight. That's the title of the message. First thing I want to look at is the presentation of the Lamb. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came. He came. He came, yes, sent by the Father, but He came willingly. As He came, this is no secret, John shows that Jesus presented himself as a willing sacrifice. We can see that from his words in John chapter 15 when he says, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You can see it earlier in the gospel. But you can also see it here in John chapter 18 when Jesus meets with his disciples. Did you notice that the place that they went to on this night after Jesus had dismissed Judas to betray him was a place familiar to Judas. Notice what it says, verse 2. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Jesus going to that place Garden, going to the place where he knew Judas would know where he was, was a part of his purposeful going forth. And there's another phrase that's used here. Look at verse 1. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth. And verse 4 also, it says, so Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, went forth. So Jesus is not hiding. Jesus is not leaving Jerusalem. He's not leaving Judea. He's going to a place that's familiar to Judas. And when it comes to Judas with the soldiers sent by the chief priests, Jesus goes forth to meet them. I want you to notice as well He goes forth with the knowledge of what's going to take place. Verse 4 says, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. John draws attention to Jesus' knowledge when he washed the disciples' feet. He says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. So it's Jesus with that knowledge acting as he acts. But here is Jesus with the knowledge of what was going to come upon him, going forth intentionally, purposely, presenting himself. Judas comes with this large contingent of soldiers. We don't know how many, if it was 
typical, you're talking about hundreds of men. It says officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they came not only authorized but armed. It says they came with lanterns and torches and weapons, and Jesus went forth. And as he went forth, we know that he had the power to escape such a force or to repel such a force. Remember Nazareth when he was preaching and they were going to take him up to the brow of a hill and toss him over the side, but he escaped from them there, escaped from them in the temple when he was hidden from their eyes. Jesus had the power to escape. He also said to Peter, and it's in the next context, although John doesn't record it here, he said to Peter, do you not think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once put my, at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? So he has the power to escape. He has the power to deal with those coming. But there's also native power in Jesus. Jesus himself, without the help of the angels, without any help of any other force, is the I am. Can you see that in the text as Jesus comes forward and he asks them, whom do you seek, verse 4, and they answered, verse 5, Jesus the Nazarene, and he said to them, I am, and the he, the New American Standard, is in the italics. Judas is there, mentions in the end of verse 5, verse 6, it says, so when he said to them, I am, he, it says they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, you could look at that as just a surprise, as if they didn't know that he was going to be there, and suddenly he's right in front of them. But if you're talking about a force of many men, men who are used to exercising themselves in the custody of prisoners or apprehending prisoners, for them to all draw back and fall to the ground is a strange thing. And when John uses this word, or these words, they go, a me, I am, there are times in the Gospel of John where you see the H-E, he in italics. And yes, it is an indication that Jesus is identifying himself. I am. Sometimes he says that with some kind of a proposition, like I am the way, the truth, and the life, or I am the bread of the life, or I am the resurrection and the life, and I am the good shepherd. But these are these are statements that someone has called the absolute I am statements. Sort of like what he said in John chapter 8 when he said, before Abraham was, I am. And what did they do there? They picked up stones to stone him because he had taken for himself the very name of God, Yahweh. And yes, that is who this is. This is God in the flesh. This is Yahweh. This is the I Am who met Moses uh, before he ever went into Egypt and then led them out of Egypt. And so with all the power and might that was displayed in Egypt and other times in Israel's history, this is the I Am who has been with Israel and the nation and blessed them whenever they fought against their enemies and they were with him and he was with them. He was the reason for their victory. And there he is, in the flesh, standing before a measly few hundred men. 
there's enough native power in the one who is speaking. Just look through the Gospels and see his power. See him calming the sea, stopping the wind, raising the dead, healing the blind, healing the lame. He has power in himself. And so he has the power to escape such a force. He has power to defeat such a force. But he doesn't use that power. The only thing he requests is that his disciples be allowed to go. Verse 8 says, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. And that's to fulfill something that he spoke, a word that he had prophesied. Peter pulls out his sword, strikes the ear off the high priest's slave, Malchus. But here's another indication that Jesus is presenting himself and willingly going forth to suffer. He rebukes Peter. He doesn't encourage Peter. He says, Peter, put up your sword. And what does he say? The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? This is his purpose. This is why he came into the world. He's presenting himself as the Lamb of God. And here are those who are going to take him to the place of sacrifice. Don't think for a moment that Jesus was caught and couldn't do anything else. Don't think for a moment this is unexpected. Jesus had prophesied it. Don't think for a moment know that this was unexpected at all. This was foreordained in the councils of eternity. This is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, and here he comes to present himself. As Hebrews says, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. And as he presents himself for the sacrifice, there is a proclamation of his innocence. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, the songwriter says, spotless lamb of God was he. We certainly can get a sense of the innocence of Christ from those who walked with him and proclaimed that in their writings to the churches. Remember, Peter said he did not sin Neither was there any deceit in his mouth. He's quoting there from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. But as you read through the Gospels, you can see that the Gospel writers were interested in showing that Jesus was innocent, and they take the declarations of innocence from Jesus' enemies or from people looking on. It's a strange thing. It's not his disciples. It's the public scene as things progress where there's innocence declared. We see that clearly in this chapter and the next, especially from Pilate. You can see in the trials as you read through the Gospels that there are times at which they can't get two false witnesses to agree. And then there's strange things going on, like Pilate's wife is having a dream And she's saying to Pilate, in the midst of things, while he's at the judgment seat, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered many things in a dream because of him. That 
consciousness must have, I think you have to account for that as you see the actions of Pilate in the gospel. But the way that John presents this portion of the passion of Christ is by giving us a window into what's taking place in chapter 18 with a Jewish trial. And there's kind of a back and forth, I think you could say in this chapter as Devin read it in the next chapter too, between the trial, as someone said, the trial and the denial. The trial of Jesus and the denial of Peter that even knows him. And so back and forth, John is recollecting those two things, showing the suffering of Jesus. But as he shows the trial, and I want to notice that, Jesus is coming before, look at verse 13, Annas, who is the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And then it goes a little bit to Peter, but then again in verse 19, back to Caiaphas, it seems, or Annas. There's question about who was exactly high priest or whether or not Annas was kind of the power behind the high priesthood, but Caiaphas was actually the one who was the figurehead, so to speak. But if you look at verse 19, in this night scene, remember Jesus was taken in the middle of the night, and verse 19, it says, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus' immediate response to that is, among other things, verse 21, why do you question me? This window into the trial, this trial has actually started illegally. The Sanhedrin is not yet gathered. He's actually at Annas' house, and he's being questioned. Some view what's taking place here as kind of a preview, giving the Sanhedrin time to meet up, and an attempt to trap Jesus in his words to make it easier to declare him guilty. But Jesus, of course, as the judge of all the earth, knows that something is amiss. Because they're not asking witnesses. They're asking him to incriminate himself in what becomes a capital trial. This is going to come to the point where they're going to call for his execution. And even in their own teachings, the Talmud, the Sanhedrin's teachings, it was illegal to try a capital case in the middle of the night. So there's also something wrong with that. But Jesus... Verse 21 says, why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Jesus is operating on the principle in the law that by the mouth of two or three witnesses a matter is to be established. But instead they're asking Jesus directly to incriminate himself. The officer, when he hears those words standing by, strikes Jesus which would also be against the law. And there was no rebuke. The evidence had not been brought forward. And so Jesus' reply to the high priest came with an assault from this officer, and the high priest does not rebuke him, and Jesus questions him. Verse 23, if I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but if rightly, why do you strike me? Nothing's being accomplished here. The only thing that's happening is Jesus is drawing attention to the law of God, which they are not operating by. Jesus certainly was innocent, but he was also righteous. He was doing what was right in the sight of God. 
Again, there's a turning to Peter and his denial, verse 25 down through verse 27, but from Annas to Caiaphas, and then from Caiaphas, verse 28, to the Praetorium, which is the governor's residence where Pilate is. And they bring him there. And there's a question as to what the accusation is, verse 29, and what is their evasive answer, verse 30? If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. That's one way of saying we don't really have a charge. Now, there's going to be some obvious focus of attention in the discussion that follows, but they don't really come out with what the charge is. You can read the Gospels and you can see that there's first a Jewish trial that takes place and then the Roman trial, or some have called it the ecclesiastic trial, the the, the gathering of the Jewish leaders, and then the civil trial, the Roman government and its representative Pilate. And that's the phase that John is recording for us as Pilate is interacting then with Jesus as Jesus has been brought to him. And the subject becomes Jesus' authority or his kingship. Look at verse 31, though. Pilate doesn't want to have anything to do with it to start with. Pilate says, verse 31, Take him to yourselves and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. And what does John tell us here is taking place? Why the transition from one to the other? What in the counsels of God was going to take place? The Jews were not going to stone Jesus, which would have been... I believe, the response to a capital crime if they were authorized to do so. No. Instead, Jesus was going to be hung on a tree. Because cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. And the Romans hung people on trees as they crucified them. So Jesus had testified to that. He had said that he would be crucified, but this very transfer of him from the Jews to the Romans resulted in the fulfillment of Jesus' own words that he was going to die in that way. So Pilate begins to question him. Verse 33, he summons Jesus, asks him the question, end of the verse, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? See, he doesn't really have a charge. All he has is this claim that he's somehow a king. Jesus is going to answer that question. Look at verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So Pilate, as he's listening to Jesus talk about his kingdom, he concludes, verse 37, so you are a king, right? I mean, this is still a question mark. But the fact that you're talking about a kingdom implies that you are a king. Jesus answers in the affirmative. If you look at the middle of the verse, Jesus answered, he said, you say correctly that I am a king. You might say it this way, you said it. 
That's right. For this I have been born. Jesus was born, remember, King of the Jews. The Magi came to see him. The star was in the sky. Yes, Jesus came into this world to be a king. Messiah refers to an anointed one. An anointed one is a prophet, priest, or king. Jesus happens to fulfill all three roles, but yes, certainly king. Jesus answers in the affirmative, for this I've been born and for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. What truth? The truth that Jesus is the king. Yes, Jesus is a king. Jesus is Lord. That is not a debatable point. That is not a good idea. That's the absolute truth, point of fact. By divine origin, divine appointment, human ancestry, based upon the virgin birth, but his connection to Mary and Joseph, who was legally in the line of David. Prophetic destiny, Jesus is Lord and King. In fact, he's King of kings, Lord of lords, now and forever, and those who do not bow before him willingly will one day fall before him reluctantly and confess him Lord of all. That's the truth that Jesus testifies to. And everyone who is of the truth hears his voice, submits to him as Lord, follows him as his disciple. But Pilate has no idea. This is not Pilate. He asks the question, what is truth? What even is truth? And what he cannot see because of his blindness, his hardness, his ignorance, is that the truth is standing right before him. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the truth in person, standing before Pilate. And Pilate says, what is truth? Doesn't have a clue. But what he does have a clue about is that Jesus is innocent. Look at the end of the chapter here. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. I find no guilt in him. And then he offers either Jesus as Barabbas, and of course they choose Barabbas. This is a public official when charges are brought, or maybe not so good charges, just an evildoer and something about a kingdom. And there's nothing worthy of death in what he's claiming. He's not a seditionist trying to rise up against the Romans. Pilate would be concerned about that. Eventually he is because that's what they say Jesus is. But Pilate is not convinced. And of course, Jesus wasn't guilty. Even Judas said, I have sinned in that I betrayed innocent blood. Pilate said, if you look at the gospel accounts, not only by his words, but by a sign where he washes his hands, that I find no guilt in this man. He sent him to Herod. Herod didn't find any guilt either. The thief on the cross said to the other, this man has done nothing wrong. Centurion who oversaw the execution eventually said, when he saw everything happening, when we're about to see in chapter 19, certainly this was a righteous man. So the presentation of the lamb and a declaration of his innocence 
Why is it important that his innocence be declared even by these strange voices? Because the lamb that was offered to God had to be spotless, had to be without blemish. It could not be blind or lame. It had to be perfect. Every sacrificial lamb pointed to that perfect sacrifice for sins, which is not an animal but a person. It's the Lord Jesus. This is why Jesus is called the Lamb of God, and that was necessary for our salvation, for someone to take our place who was spotless because we are not spotless. We are full of wickedness, filthy, vile, evil, transgressors before God, and we needed a sinless substitute to take our place, to take our penalty. Paul said he made him to who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter 1.17, he says, You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He's been presented, he's presented himself, presents himself spotless. But when the lamb is spotless and it is presented, and then the next step for the offerer is to put the hand on the head of the animal, to take a knife and to slit the throat and to let the blood flow. Suffering. The animal, of course, did not suffer long, but it would suffer. And, of course, that points to the future suffering of Christ. Every single one of those lambs, Passover lambs. You know, the Passover, one of the features of the Passover was for that lamb to be taken on the tenth day and for that lamb to be with the family for several days before the lamb was sacrificed. There would have been a familiarity with this lamb, a baby lamb to have in your home to play with, and then suddenly that precious, innocent lamb to have its throat cut would have been quite something to behold, whether you were a child or adult. And that's when we think about the suffering of Christ and his innocence, it should cause us horror that he would have to suffer as he does. How does he suffer? Bearing shame and scoffing rude, the songwriter says, in my place condemned he stood. Though his whole life was a life of suffering in a sense, there was a time when he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So there was a time when his suffering increased and intensified. And it's this time as he's facing the cross, and certainly he suffered in the garden. In the previous chapter, he suffers by being betrayed by one of his followers for three years. He suffers by being denied by Peter, one of the closest of his disciples and part of the inner circle. He suffers because he has been tried by unjust judges. That's the denial and the trial. But now there's the mockery. Look at verse 1. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and put a purple robe on him. 
They began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. So here comes the mockery of the people and the judgment of Roman law, the scourging of the crucifixion victim that involved a whip, oftentimes with a wooden handle and straps of leather, pieces of bone, perhaps metal attached to it, and the soldier would strike. And if it was a Jew, he could only be struck 39 times, but that wasn't the limit of the Romans. They would beat a person until they knew that he'd been beaten enough that he would eventually die upon the cross. Jesus, as he's going through that scourging and pain, is also being mocked. And there's no pity There's a call for pity. Pilate actually brings Jesus out, verse 4, after that, presents him to the Jews, verse 5, wearing that crown of thorns and the purple robe, and he says, behold the man, as if to call for their pity after he's bloodied and battered. But they would have none of it. Instead, when they saw him, they cried out. Look at verse 6. Crucify! Crucify! Pilate again declares that he finds no guilt in him. He tells them to take him and crucify him themselves. But because they cannot prosecute capital crimes, and that's what the Romans did, they put it again back to Pilate. And because Pilate hears, I believe what he hears there at the end of verse 7 is that phrase, the Son of God. He already understands there's something about this person that's unusual. Certainly his wife's dream would have had an impact. Jesus' physical presence and his speaking with him and talking about a kingdom that was not of this world. But now there's more conversation between Pilate and Jesus. Look at verse 9. His question to Jesus, where are you from? Where are you from? And then their ensuing conversation indicates something about Jesus' identity and where he's from because look at verse 10. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. You do not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. From above. There's someone above. My kingdom is not of this world. Jesus is the Son of God. All these things on the mind of a pagan, probably superstitious, his wife certainly was, is having an impact. And as a result, he wants to release Jesus. Verse 12 tells us that. But again, the Jews would have none of it. And they actually put him in a position that... Jesus is claiming to be a king and opposing Caesar, and so Pilate, representative of Caesar, if you allow this king to continue who's opposing the king over you, you're going to be guilty. Pilate finds himself in a position, of course he doesn't have principles anyway, and so he sits down, makes the judgment, says to the Jews, Behold your king. And they call again for his crucifixion, verse 15. He says, Shall I crucify your king? And their answer is, here's the 
suffering of Jesus as he not only suffers denial, betrayal, being tried by unjust judges, suffering the shame and the pain and the mocking, but now here is the formal rejection of Jesus by his own nation. He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him. How do we know they didn't? They formally didn't. When there was the opportunity to receive him as king, they rejected him. And they chose Caesar instead. The end of the verse says, we have no king but Caesar. And to a certain extent, that's just the prelude to even more suffering. We best continue. Because following that rejection, there's then the handing of Jesus over to the soldiers to take him to be crucified. In an insult, they make him bear his own cross. They're not even going to take the hardship of carrying this instrument of torture for him. Too much for them, so he has to carry it himself instrument of his execution all the way to the place. We know Simon helped him to bear the cross, but then they took him to Golgotha. In verse 18 it says, there they crucified him. And where did they place him? They placed him not on the side, not behind the others, but actually front and center between the two. He's the center of attention. And there's a mocking inscription over his head. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. The mockery, the shame, all of this following the rejection. We understand that crucifixion would take place with the soldiers taking the victim, literally nailing sometimes tying, but we know that they nailed his hands and his feet to the cross. We know he already is bearing a crown of thorns. Following nailing him to the cross, they would then put that upright and put it into the hole in the ground, and there the victim would stay until he died. Hours. So what happens there in just a few verses is a record of hours where the Son of God is shamefully associated with criminals, painfully suffering, being mocked. He's being deprived even of his garments. Verse 23 tells us the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his outer garments and made four parts, a part to every soldier and also the tunic. Now the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to decide whose it shall be. And of course, that's fulfilling Scripture from the Old Testament. John says the reason they did those things was for that reason, but let's not miss the point. They took his garments Here he is suffering on a cross in plain view. 
practically naked, without clothes. It's no wonder the scripture speaks of the cross as something that's shameful. It was shameful for the Romans. The Romans wouldn't allow a Roman citizen to be crucified. This is for the low life. This is not for citizens. This is for slaves that run away. This is for criminals, despicable ones. And here's Jesus suffering associated with criminals. Of course, he cried out, and the other gospel records it, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of the suffering that he is experiencing is not just the physical, not just the social, not just the mockery, but the separation of himself from his father, that feeling or that cry of abandonment. It's spiritual suffering as the weight of sin is pressing down upon our Savior. And then there are those nearby whom he loves. And Jesus has a tender heart. He was just with Lazarus. Before he raised him from the dead, he was there in the scene with Mary and Martha and the other Jews who were weeping for him. And that's where we see Jesus weeping. His tender, compassionate heart for those Jews. So what do you think he thinks when his mother is watching him be crucified? The emotional pain. Verse 25 tells us standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother. Of course, that's Mary, his mother's sister, another relative. And Mary Magdalene, one of his followers, out of whom he cast evil spirits. And then John is there, said that John is the disciple whom he loved. And before Jesus dies, he's going to take care of his mother. Even in those moments as she's looking on, it's apparent that Jesus is concerned for her because he says in verse 26, at the end of the verse, woman, behold your son. And he's not talking about himself. Seems that she's a widow now, and John is his close disciple and someone who would care for her. And so he says to the disciple, behold your mother. And what does it say? From that very hour, he took her into his household so that she wouldn't have to look on and see this. Suffering emotionally as he's watching others suffer because of what he's going through. And then deprivation. Not only did they take his clothes, they haven't given him anything to drink. Verse 28 says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. Now, we could certainly say the primary thing on his mind, and John is recording it, is that there's a word of God that hasn't been fulfilled. And that's important because God's word is always true. But do you think he wasn't thirsty? Well, if he said, I'm thirsty, he's thirsty. And so they take this sour wine, sponge full of it, put it on a branch of hyssop, bring it up to his mouth, and that's his last act before his cry. What cry? The lamb has been presented. 
the lamb is innocent. The lamb is suffering. And he's not suffering for himself if he's innocent. He's bearing the griefs of others. It says, surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. So this is all substitutionary. Jesus is suffering for the sake of others that they might have salvation. He had lived the righteous life. It's his righteousness that is given as a gift to anyone who calls upon God, calls upon Jesus Christ for salvation. It's that righteousness that is given, and he is paying that penalty so that the sinner doesn't have to in hell forever. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But what does Jesus cry out in verse 30? It is finished. See, Jesus seems passive to a certain extent here, being taken and beaten, scourged, questioned. Jesus seems to be passive, but he, he's actually presented himself and he's suffering and he's accomplishing exactly what the Father had sent him to do. And so this is a sense of completion. Tetelestai is the Greek word. Something that has happened, it has taken place, and it will have continuing results. And indeed, to all eternity, the effect of what Christ did has implication and application for all who believe on him. What is finished? Finished is the ransom payment for our salvation. Son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And here his payment is given, it's offered, and it's accepted. Finished is the offering of a perfect sacrifice in our place. Peter says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. I love what... One writer said, he said, listen, and it will appear to you as if in the words it is finished, you hear fetters burst and prison walls fall down. At these words, barriers as high as heavens are overthrown and the gates which have been closed for thousands of years again move on their hinges. Well, we actually have a record of that veil splitting in two and the way into God's presence is made possible because the veil is rent. Christ has died And sinners can enter in by faith into the presence of God. Are you one of them? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord? Have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ that you might have that salvation, that you might enter into the presence of God? This is not universalism. This isn't for everyone. This is only for those who put their trust in Jesus Christ, for those who turn from their sins and believe that God has raised him from the dead, which, of course, you're going to read about in the next chapter. What is finished? The ransom payment. What is finished? The offering of the perfect sacrifice. What is finished? Well, the Son of Man has been lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. Everyone who looks can live Savior has borne away sins just like the scapegoat on the Day of Atonement. Those sins are gone. They're gone. 
suffering servant of Isaiah has been crushed for our iniquities. And the Passover lamb has now been slain. And what does it take when the Passover lamb is slain? It takes the application of that blood over the door of the household. And when a family, by faith, proceeded in that way in Egypt, what was true? That household was safe. The destroyer could not enter. They were protected from the wrath of God. And just like that, if someone comes under the blood of Jesus Christ, you're safe. You're secure. You're protected by the Passover lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. I trust as we have brought some scenes from the cross before our eyes tonight. As we have looked at the Lamb of God, as we have thought on the Lamb of God, that the Lord will apply this to our hearts. There may be someone here tonight who has never put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. Never confessed Him as Lord. Today could be the day of your salvation if you look to Him. But the gospel, remember what Paul said to the Romans? He said, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. This is for all of us. This is such a precious truth and set of truths that our Lord would give himself willingly, innocently, to suffer on our behalf to win the victory. That we might have life, eternal life, forever. Glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord. May the Lord encourage our hearts. Let's look to him in prayer tonight. Father, as we bow, we do pray for those who do not know you, who are in need of putting their trust in you. We ask, Lord, that by your Spirit and only through the Word of God and the Spirit of God, as the Word has been proclaimed, you can bring a soul to yourself. Pray that they might, even tonight, seek out someone who can show them the way if they need to. But even now, if you're convicting hearts, we pray that you would just increase that. Don't let them rest. Help them to turn from their sins and find salvation in Christ alone. For us, Lord, who are saved, this is the power of God. We rejoice in it. We pray that we might not delight in any way in those things which displease you. We pray that we might turn from our own sins besetting sins, any sin that we have in our life, knowing that it's our sin that placed him on the cross. Deepen our love for the Lord Jesus who died for us and rose again. We pray these things in his name. Amen.